Dateline, 1965. A crew of eight Japanese men fly to New England in the United States to make a documentary sort of movie and take pictures of Ivy League students with and without their knowledge. The book they made would be an influence on cultural history and fashion for the next 50 plus years. Reed, what are we talking about? Today we're talking about Take Ivy. That's right. Take Ivy, which was a uh, Japanese book that, you know, took Japan by storm. And then, you know, in the late 2000s, like early 2010s, it took the United States by storm again. And it's own interpretation of Ivy League style, which you know wasn't really a thing until Japan looked at it and was like, oh, what you're doing is Ivy League style. But we're going to be talking with the person who knows probably more about this cultural conversation than anyone else. We are talking with author David Marks of the book Amatora, How Japan Saved American Style. So I hope you enjoy the interview. David, thanks for coming on and taking the time to be with us here today. Uh, appreciate you explaining the the wild and weird world of Take Ivy to us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, before we get going, just wanted to, I guess, help people get a little bit of context about who you were and what your relationship is with the book and uh, how you came to know the story. I wrote a book called Amatora, How Japan Saved American Style, which we'll talk about. And it's the history of writing that book is very much tied to the history of Take Ivy coming out in English. So we'll talk more about that. But I wanted to start with just kind of why I was in Japan to start with. So uh, I've lived in Japan now for the last about 17 years. And in high school, I went to Japan for three weeks, ended up getting very interested in it. And then in college was studying Japanese and spent a couple summers in Tokyo. And during one of those summers, uh, I discovered Japanese street fashion and the brand A Bathing Ape. Um, and this was 1998 before the brand had really taken off in the U.S. and there wasn't much information about it. And I got into it because the way they were selling the clothing was very, you know, alien to me as just an American teenager, which is that people were waiting in line three hours to buy T-shirts that were about $60 instead of $20 and buying $200 pairs of jeans and wearing raw denim, which I had never really seen. Uh, I think in the U.S. the denim was still very wide leg and very washed, if not ice washed. And so um, seeing all this in Japan and realizing everybody was very stylish and that, that kids were willing to spend so much of their time and money on clothing was odd. And so I went back to school, uh, both really interested in the fashion just on a personal level and trying to collect Japanese street fashion and, and bathing ape, but then also uh, trying to kind of write about it as an intellectual or academic subject. And so I started doing research on it and I went back in 2000 to do a lot of research on, you know, why is it that Japanese youth were willing to wait three hours in line to buy t-shirts that were intentionally undersupplied to the uh, demand that, that was there for them. And in that process, I kind of got interested in the history of Japanese youth fashion a bit. And there's some good books that have kind of photos throughout the years. And uh, over time, I was looking at those. And then I moved back to Japan to get a master's degree in 2003. And I wanted to study more fashion, but ended up the degree needed a little more um, uh, data. And so I ended up looking at the music industry, but I was still interested in that history of Japanese fashion. And uh, I was scheming on writing a book that was kind of a history of Japanese fashion. And, it, and I was working on a proposal, then I kind of dropped it. And uh, didn't quite know what to do with it. And then at the same time, you know, I was following Japanese fashion for a long time. And then in 2008, I noticed that in the US, there started brewing kind of a movement uh, of men, men who are reinterested in fashion in a way they hadn't been. And, you know, in 2005 or six, I always had a sense that Japan was still, you know, Japanese youth and Japanese guys were into fashion, but not necessarily uh, ones in the US so much. And and at that time, even in, in Japan, the fashion was like, it was very Paul Smith or Dior um, or like kind of um, uh, black suits, very slim, very European. And then, you know, when Tom Brown came out, 
he was very big in Japan very quickly. And suddenly there was this kind of rush of getting back into American trad style. And I noticed in the US that that was also happening at the same time. And so around 2008, all the blogs started kind of uh, figuring out that Japan was also into American traditional style and scanning and reprinting a lot of the things that they were getting out of Japan. And so I started noticing these uh, links that were happening between Japan and the US around traditional American style. And I had grown up in the South and the South was a place where preppy style really still existed in a way that I don't think it did even in New England. And so I knew, you know, I grew up wearing polo and Oxford button downs and chinos and, and things like that. And uh, all that made a lot of sense to me. So I understood it a lot better than I understood European fashion. And so when that was happening, I uh, took an interest in it and was kind of trying to figure out what was going on. And then uh, I, I became aware of this book called Take Ivy, that it was a Japanese fashion. Uh, it, it's a book of photography of the Ivy League campuses in the year 1965 that a Japanese photographer had taken. And if you went to a, a men's trad shop in Tokyo, they would always have a copy kind of lying there. And so I would see it once in a while, and I knew it was pretty expensive to buy. And I think they had done reprints around that time that were, even the reprints were kind of rare. But it was a relatively rare book, and I would just see it in the stores. And then uh, I started seeing scans of this in on American blogs. So the big news was in 2010, Powerhouse Books, which is a Brooklyn-based publisher, put out the first English translation of this book. So this book had always been in Japanese, and they did a reprint of the book that's very kind of authentic to the original, but they translated all the text to English and put it out in the United States. And so this was a really big deal uh, in that small kind of uh, fashion blogger community, but then also it ended up selling about 50 to 60,000 copies worldwide, which is, which is a lot of copies for a book. And uh, at the same time, in the New York Times, there was a big article about the fact that all of those, that generation of designers like Mark McNary uh, and Michael Bastian all consider this book to be kind of one of their main references. Uh, Rebecca Bay, who was at J, J. Crew, I think at the time also. So that generation of designers all referenced the book as this kind of holy grail that they were obsessed with and couldn't get their hands on. And then finally, there was an English version. And so there was a lot of coverage of the book, and it was all from the perspective of, hey, a Japanese film crew went to the United States to film, to you know, shoot these photos of stylish American college students in 1965, and here are the photos, and aren't they great, and they're part of our heritage, and that's it. And it was missing what I thought was a really crucial ingredient, which was explaining why in the world did a crew of Japanese writers and photographers go to the Ivy League campuses in 1965 to shoot photos of students. Um, and so that whole story I felt was missing and, uh, and, and things were happening where I was learning about that and, uh, that I thought would be an interesting story in its own right. Hmm. So Take Ivy was initially the impetus for you to get more involved in writing the book? Yeah, so you know, I had a vague sense of writing a history about youth fashion in Japan kind of from the post-war onward. And I just never quite could figure out what the angle was. It, it was just going to be kind of a straight cultural history. And then with Take Ivy, I suddenly discovered, oh, there's a story specifically about traditional American fashion coming to Japan in the 60s. And now it's being exported out of Japan and sold in the United States. And I thought that was kind of a very nice uh, kind of two bookends and a narrative to tell in a story that helps tie everything up. And what had happened was I, there's this place in Tokyo called Brift Ash, which is a shoe shine bar. It's not really a bar. They don't serve drinks, but you go in and you put your shoes on the counter and this kind of master shoe polisher polishes them for like 45 minutes. And then they Very serve Japanese. you, they serve you a, uh, like a little flute of sparkling uh, apple juice or something, right? And so I was in there trying it out and getting some shoes polished. And this guy comes in and he plops down a 
copy of Take IV. Uh, and he goes, look at this. And he's kind of talking to no one and everyone at the same time. And there's only like four people in there. Look at this. I've got all four authors to sign it. Uh, and it was also like a misprint version, like a super rare Take IV. And this was 2009. And I said, oh, wow, that's, that's amazing. Uh, I just was researching Van Jacket, which is the company that I'll talk about in a second that organized this whole project. I was just writing an English language article about them. Uh, and he said, hey, I used to work for Van Jacket, and I'm really good friends with the founder's son, who happens to be one of the writers of Take IB named Shosuke Ishizu. Let me introduce you to him. So like a week later, I go to the Ishizu, Ishizu office. And I meet him. I talk about Take Ivy. I talk about kind of the backstory. It's a very casual chat, but I realize I have access now to these, the, the writers of Take Ivy. Uh, the backstory is really interesting. And then as Take Ivy develops kind of 2010, 11, uh, I start realizing, okay, I, can, I could do this as a book. So that, that's sort of the, the central narrative, and that that was like the MacGuffin for the the story of Japanese fashion. Yeah, because it it you know when you write a book, especially in English for an American publisher, there's you know going through the proposal stage is always the hardest because it's kind of like why you know why does anyone need to re read this book? And you could write the greatest book ever, but you've got to convince people to pick it up and have some sort of hook. And so that was a news hook that I could use, which is you know rare Japanese book from 1965 sells 50 to 60,000 copies. But it also it's kind of a metaphor for this whole process about how obsessed these Japanese brands and consumers got around American traditional style, trying to define it, trying to create all these rules based on it, explain it to people, and then the degree to which the the products made under those extreme rules and extreme obsessions are now coveted back in the United States and other places. So, you know, it, it, it is both kind of the, the news hook for the book, but also a really good symbol of the whole story. I was wondering if you could maybe describe what the book Take Ivy is like for people that haven't seen it. Because, you know, in my encounter of it and just uh, rereading it for this uh, interview here, it sort of looks like a like preamble to a yearbook or something like that. If you aren't reading the captions it it looks like an artifact from the american 1960s yeah so it's it's mostly photos with a lot of captions and the captions are explanatory of what the people are doing and what they're wearing and why they're doing it in a in a tone that is very much it's very pedantic and very didactic and very much explaining it to an audience who's never been to an ivy league campus or seen people in the East Coast dressing in a preppy style. So it's written for a Japanese audience in 1965 who doesn't know anything about this whole world. And mm. the photos are, they're great photos. Uh, they're candids. I would say probably 95% of them are not posed uh, of students just walking around the campuses. They, they tried to go to all the schools, but I think they didn't go to uh, Cornell and they didn't go to University of Pennsylvania, but it's most of them. And the cover, I believe, is at Princeton, a uh, beautiful Gothic building in the background. Kids wearing what is considered to be kind of classic Ivy League East Coast traditional style, although it's a much more dressed down version of it, as we'll talk about. So it's a mix between the photos and the captions and the kind of explanation. And I think yearbook is, is the right idea because to an American especially at the time, these photos would have been really uh, obvious. Like there's nothing that interesting about them. And, you know, when you pick up a yearbook from a school you didn't go to, like, it's not very interesting, right? Because it's like the most mm -hmm. basic things. But it, if you went to the school, it's your friends and all that. And I think that yearbook, to someone in 1965 in America would have picked this up and said, this is a yearbook for something I don't care about. Where in Japan, everything they were seeing that from the buildings in the background to the cars, to the bicycles, to the hot dogs they're eating in the cafeteria, everything felt alien and interesting and uh, mm -hmm. a sign of a, a more prosperous, high-status life. And so um, it is kind of a, it's almost like, you know, we went to Mars and found a civilization and took photos of it and explained what the civilization was doing. It's that level of almost anthropological detail. 
I have a quick question on these captions because that's been my my favorite part of the book probably since I, I picked it up for the first time. Did they speak to any of the folks that they photographed for these captions because they make a lot of assumptions um, and are often very specific, but it doesn't often seem like they did have any interaction? I think for the most part they didn't because they were shooting it somewhat clandestinely because they didn't always have the right to uh, photograph on campus. And so in the case of Dartmouth, there's there's more participation and you'll see more staged things like they, they are out with a rowing crew and the rowing crew, uh, you know, they, they got permission to do that. And that was all that was all uh, OK. In the case of Harvard, they were doing it completely clandestinely. But, uh, you know, the, I, in reading interviews with the authors, especially when they got back from the shoot, they would often ask, you know, the kids, why are your why are your chinos too short? And they would say, I don't know. Or like, why are you wearing that? And they're like, I don't know. Like, why are you asking all these questions? So I think mm-hmm. they did try to ask them about how they decided what to wear and generally found that nobody would admit to any conscious decision making when it came to their clothing. So, you know, that's very different too, because the whole exercise, as we should talk about in a second, was to teach kids in Japan how to dress up. And what was very clear talking to these kids is that in in the U.S. is they weren't dressing up at all. They were just kind of throwing on whatever and going out. Mm. Yeah, I appreciate the sort of like fan fiction nature of the captions. I, I don't read Japanese. I'm only reading the powerhouse translation. But things like uh, there's one of a kid like sunbathing that they say like uh, this photo shows a student who was desperately trying to get bronze skin while also preparing for an exam. Ivy Leaguers frown upon students who earn good grades but have pale skin from spending too much time inside. <laughs> So just like, I don't know, is the original Japanese text like as stilted and as much of a like hypothesizing about the lives of and, and the culture that they're observing? Yes. And I think most of it was written by Paul Hasegawa, who was one of the authors who had actually spent time in the U.S. And he knew kids from the colleges, but, you know, he didn't know that much. And he was just making it up a lot of the time with a lot of bravado and admits admits to as much at this point. Um, but you know, nobody, there's no, no way to check it. I mean, like just to give you context, travel only became allowed for tourists outside of Japan in, in 1964. So they shot this in 1965. So, you know, no one was going to the United States unless you had some sort of official business and it was very expensive. It was basically like the price of a new car to get on a plane. And so, uh, there's no way to fact check this. There's very few kids who are mm-hmm. going to these colleges. And so you're looking for authoritative advice from Men's Club, which is the magazine that was, was associated with this book and the book itself. And so the writers felt a need to write their sentences with that kind of uh, declarative tone of this is, this is what is happening and this is why. It, it, I just do love the way it manifests itself, like when he dunks all over Hanover saying like since there's absolutely no entertainment whatsoever outside of the <laughs> campus thing, things like that those are those are always great for me uh, and the people writing it had no intention or expectation of this ever leaving japan or leaving even the small subculture that it existed in or that it was being written for in japan either yeah absolutely i mean i think they're stunned still that it was sent back to the united states at some point you know 50 years later was this an entirely novel creation, or were there other books like this that existed culturally in Japan of like, you know, uh, looking at rodeos or like malls or even in other countries? Like, did anyone ever make a book of going to the UK or going to France or going to, I don't know, South Africa or something to make a, a, a documentary book like this? Not that I know of or that was particularly famous or that is equally legendary. And so, you know, to set the context again, you know, in 1945, the war ends, there's an American occupation for about, you know, 10 years after that, the post-war is only declared over in 1956. And so from there forward, Japan is still pretty poor, it's rebuilding and men's fashion really isn't a thing at all. And uh, no one is overseas because you can't get overseas. There's some people who have some opportunity to go overseas you know, very elite people. And they keep sending back uh, dispatches into magazines and newspapers saying in America, they do this and in England, they do this. And so there's only two or three 
writers kind of providing this kind of content, but everyone's very interested in what is going on overseas because they see that as the new standard that they should aspire towards. Um, the U.S. you know occupation goes relatively well in terms of you know there wasn't a big resistance against it. And it, it wasn't necessarily that everyone decided they loved America, but they realized that the United States was the standard that they should aspire towards. And so everyone uh, realizes that if they can live more American, that means living more prosperously. And that's what they should. Uh, that's the aim. And so you get all this kind of instruction of here's what's going on in the US or here's what's going on in England. But, you know, fashion magazines at that point in particular, can't really get overseas. It's just too expensive and they, they can't get the, the right permissions. And so Men's Club is the, the magazine, kind of the, the first important youth fashion magazine. And it started in the 50s as a, a magazine about ready-to-wear clothing for men. And so there had been a tailoring magazine, but this was the first ready-to-wear. And uh, around the 60 two or three, it starts converting a little bit more to kind of a youth, youth fashion, uh, collegiate fashion magazine. And the main backer of the magazine was a brand called Van Jacket. And Van Jacket was Japan's more or less first men's clothing brand. So there had been tailors, but this was the first brand. And in, in the early 60s, the founder, Kensuke Shizu, had done a world tour and he had ended up in Princeton. And he realized at Princeton that the kids were wearing the perfect ready-to-wear style that could be sold to young people, and that was Ivy League style. And it was, you know, tweed blazers and mattress blazers for summer, uh, chino pants rather than wool, the Oxford cloth button-down, all, uh, you know, loafers, that whole kind of classic look. And he had been looking for a youth fashion style that didn't make youth look like delinquents because at that point, young people were still only wearing uniforms, more or less. And so he had to find a way to put youth into some sort of fashion, but make it look high class. And, and he, at Princeton, he finds the style. So he goes back, he starts making Van Jacket a Ivy League fashion brand. And then from there, he convinces Men's Club to uh, get more and more kind of youth-oriented and more Ivy League styled. And he was the main sponsor to men's club so he didn't run men's club but he was the main sponsor he bought the back ad every time and so the van jacket staff was actually kind of part of the editorial team of the magazine so they they were moving it more ivy league style and what they were doing was going up to some of the universities in japan that looked like western universities so in hokkaido there's a university in sapporo that was built i think in the late 19th century and it looks a lot like dartmouth or, or harvard or something like that so they would do these fake fashion shoots where they made it look like they were on an American campus wearing American fashion style. And at some point, they just kind of exhausted all the possible places to shoot. And so in 1965, they said, oh, you know what we can do now that we can actually get plane tickets is we could go to the United States and shoot it. And so it was a pretty radical idea at the time for them to go. And I, I don't think before that point, it would have even been possible. Now, there's, there's one thing that we haven't talked about yet that is the real instigator of why they decided to do this book, which is that in 1964, Ivy League style starts to get really big uh, among teenagers. And the kids start hanging out in the neighborhood of Ginza, which is kind of the, the most pres prestigious neighborhood in Tokyo. And at the time, it was the real kind of shopping, high-end high shopping neighborhood. And they started hanging out there wearing Ivy League clothes like Madras and chino pants that were way too short. And the Olympics was going to start uh, in early October. And so they were hanging around in September. And there started to be about 200, 300 of these kids just hanging around and like clogging up the streets. And no one had ever seen this clothing before. And the police just assumed that this was delinquent clothing that they were wearing. So these like Japanese punks wearing madras and uh, chino pants and Oxford button down mm -hmm. shirts are causing all these problems. And so in late September, they you know, uh, bring these giant buses in and they start just like hauling the kids off the street and taking them to the police station. And, and uh, you know, I wouldn't say arrest makes it sound like they were charged with crimes, but they were just basically detained and kicked off the streets. The and original so, Brooks Brothers riot here. <laughs> right. 
And so this was these this tribe they were called the Miyuki tribe because they hung out on Miyuki Street. And the Miyuki tribe was arrested and there was this kind of public outcry about this Ivy Lake, Ivy style. So the word in Japanese is Ivy. So this mm-hmm. Ivy style is, you know, corrupting the minds of youth. No one knows what the word Ivy means. The uh police have been tipped off that the word Ivy means like beggar. So it's like these beggar kids are like all hanging around in Ginza and this brand van jacket is somehow selling this immoral style to kids and it's a big social problem. And so Ivy League style is seen as a big social problem at the end of 64 with the Olympics. And the people running van jacket are a little bit horrified about, you know, okay, great. Our brand is very popular with young people, but it's being seen as a, a source of teenage delinquency. So what do we do? And so there was a need to show Ivy League style for what it was in the United States, which was the, you know, waspy, rich person clothing style of the most prestigious universities. And so Take Ivy was their way to, to go there, create documentary footage that this is a proper style for people to wear, that rich Americans wear it. And then go back to Japan and show everybody, hey, look, this isn't a beggar style. This isn't delinquent. This is high class. And therefore, you should allow your, you know, allow teenagers to wear it. And, and so that was really the driving factor was that there was this crisis at the brand van jacket that their Ivy League style was being misinterpreted as some sort of delinquency. The Ivy panic was uh, something that was hurting them uh, financially. And I mean, I think uh, ironically, like the whole, you know, there's no, no bad publicity. They were doing great financially, but you know, the police are coming to visit them and, uh, there's more heat than they wanted. Yeah. It was just kind of like, you know, they're not, they weren't trying to run some sort of shady operation. They were, uh, you know, upstanding members of society and feeling bad mm-hmm. that this thing they were doing to try to make Japanese youth have their own fashion and you know intentionally Kensuke Shizu of Van Jacket had brought back the style from Princeton saying this is the style that's not going to make parents freak out and then he, only to have parents freak out when their kids wore it. Mm. Yeah, it's, a, it's a little um, difficult to frame it, uh, our minds I guess around it from a western point of view that like prep style is something that's subversive and uh, equivalent with delinquent so what was uh, the typical dress like for um, the average Japanese person if they weren't a teenager wearing a school uniform? Were they still very much in like traditional Japanese dress or the westernization gotten to the point where most people were wearing suits and uh, other forms of more formal Western dress? Now, by that point, men are all in Western dress of some kind. But the, the way people approached Western fashion was very much from the standpoint of uniforms. So salarymen, you know, white collar workers are wearing suits, but they're wearing the, the most shapeless anonymous suits as a uniform, you know, just dark, dark shoes, white shirt. The word in Japanese for like a, a button up shirt is waishatsu, which in Y is for white. And so the idea is just like, you only wear a white shirt, you wear a blue or a gray suit and black shoes. And then young elite kids uh, who are in high school, which at that point, you know, it's not for everybody quite yet. And then college, which is even more elite, they're all wearing a kind of uh, black wool uniform called a gakuran. Uh, and a gakuran is kind of, it looks like a, almost a Prussian military uniform from the 19th century with a hat. And they had to wear the same uniform every single day, basically from their, you know, from high school all the way to graduating college. And then as soon as they graduated college, they got a job at a white collar firm and switched over to a suit. So basically the entire idea of men's clothing is uniforms. They're just wearing uniforms. And if they're off, maybe they just take off the suit jacket or they put on a pair of, uh, they, they still wear the wool pants, but they put on a sweater. I mean, it, it, there was really no such thing as kind of dressing fashionably. Now there was obviously actual delinquents and, gangsters and all that wearing stylized suits or wearing jeans you know at some point in the 50s they're still they're buying jeans on the black market but most kind of good kids don't have a uh okay i'm gonna go home and put on a t-shirt and shorts and run around everyone's wearing kind of a broken down version of their uniform and so what 
you know, to us, yes, preppy style is not radical, but in 1965 or 1964, just seeing a young person wear something that isn't a uniform, especially in Ginza, which is like the high end part of town, was seen as radical. No, no, everything had been so hyper normalized. No, any expression of individuality in Japanese fashion was seen as something like uh, somewhat transgressive. I mean, I wouldn't even say individuality because like all these kids are kind of dressed identically. It's like, it's just, it's just the idea that they're not in uniform, that any young person Mm -hmm. not in uniform must be delinquent. Uh, And, you know, some of that was that the kids who weren't in uniform were delinquent, but it was more that uh, there's something, just a strong rule at the time that a proper member of society, especially on a white collar track, is wearing a uniform of some kind. So uh, Van Jacket and Men's Club, they have the idea to restore the honor of this kind of clothing in Japanese society, and they start plotting the the Take Ivy expedition to to New England? Yeah, so kind of early 1965. So the Olympics happens in 1964, and that was also a pretty big moment because a lot of people came from overseas. And so Men's Club was running around photographing as many foreigners as they can to kind of check out their Uh, style. Um, the, The 1964... Olympic uniform is uh, for the Japanese team. They're wearing red blazers. Van Jacket. There was kind of some some speculation that Van Jacket was behind getting that team in blazers, and it, it wasn't them. It was um, it's very convoluted. But there was a tailor who kind of came up with the uniform. But the fact that they were wearing blazers brought blazers into style. And so Van Jacket had been trying to sh- sell navy blazers to all the department stores, and they. They just wouldn't sell them. They just didn't understand why these jackets had gold buttons. And then once the Olympic team had worn blazers in as in their you know in the opening ceremony, uh, blazers start selling really well. And so there's a kind of you know momentum that they got going into 1965 of like, hey, like this thing's working. Let's go to the United States. Let's let's you know film. And their idea was a was a movie. So. Take Ivy, we remember it as a book, but it was a movie project. And so what they wanted to do was go to all the campuses, film uh, everyone, uh, the kids dressed in the way they had been telling all the readers in men's club that Japanese, that sorry, that American East Coast university students dressed, which was they wore uh, gray, charcoal gray suits with three buttons. Pants with a strap on the back, uh, called the Ivy strap, black wingtips, uh, very formal. They carried around narrow umbrellas. And so they were going to go to the campus and they were going to shoot all these kids wearing that. And that was the plan. And so, uh, the two kind of instigators of this were the people in, in charge of Van Jacket's planning department and two of the authors. So one of them is, uh, Toshiyuki Kurosu, who was Japan's first kind of Ivy League obsessed person. And then Shosuke Shizu, who was the son of the founder. And so they started kind of putting together the plan. And then they bring in Paul Hasegawa, who, again, was the only person at Van who could speak English and had lived in the United States. So Hasegawa starts writing all these letters to the campuses saying, hey, we want to come film. Is that okay? And you know, some of them were ignored. The only one who really got back to him and said, yes, like come on and uh, let's do something was Dartmouth. And so Dartmouth was really supportive. And if you look at the book, most of the photos are from Dartmouth. And and the film is mostly shot at Dartmouth. So they end up in May going all the way there. And then when they got there, they got there kind of too late. And so one of the problems of the book is that no one's on campus. Because like by May, I think it's like after finals and it's basically like the week before graduation and it's pretty dead. And so they had a really hard time getting you know footage of students at all. But the number one problem is they got there and no one is wearing suits. No one's wearing the three-button classic Ivy League suits. They're all dressed casually because by that point in 1965 the style started getting much much more casual and had they gone six months later you would have started to see jeans and a lot more hippie gear as well so this was kind of the last gasp of that east coast style but at that point it already become incredibly dressed down and so when the first students started popping out at harvard and they were shooting them they were they were like stop the cameras because the kids were just wearing cut off chinos and uh, flip flops and their shirts are untucked, and you know these are the kids that we want to shoot. We want to wait for the people in suits, and then they realized soon that there were no people in suits. Where they got that idea that 
uh, Ivy League kids wore suits? And is this something that they had just sort of made up in their head or uh, taken from movies or other material that had made it into Japan? Or was this something that uh, Paul, the one person that had lived in the United States, had brought back? No, because Paul kept telling them, like, you're out of your mind. Like, they don't wear suits. They only wear suits to, like, get dressed up or if they have an event. Like, they're not going to be in suits. Um, but Kurosu and Ishizu were just, like, you know, convinced that what they had seen from, like, two issues of Life magazine and whatever mm-hmm. scraps of info they could find. I mean, at this point, too, it's, like, hard for them to get Western magazines. And so every month, they're just running around to all the Western bookshops trying to find any pictures. Um, there's a lot of Hollywood stars at this point like uh, Anthony Perkins and Paul Newman, who are dressing in Ivy League style, or Miles Davis on the cover of records and things like that. And so they're just like kind of taking all the scraps they can, but they had, they had imagined a world that didn't exist. And, and again, you know, Paul Hasegawa was, was trying to uh, disabuse him of the idea. Yeah. yeah. But then, you know, he was the junior guy on the team and they're just like, yeah, don't listen to him. So uh, anyway, so they, they, they were really worried that the project was a bust. Like, the first couple of days because no one was dressing as proper as they thought they would. Oh, what was the, the expedition like? Was it uh, just like the four guys that roll up in a car with tinted windows and start, you know, shooting out the, uh, out of the car, these uh, candid shots of students walking to class? Well, it's because it was a film. So there was a film director and then three crew. And mm-hmm. then there was the, the three kind of coordinator writers. And then there was the photographer. So for Hayashida was the name of the photographer. And they basically told Hayashida, just like, you know, you have to shoot. Sorry, just to go back a second. Like they were about to leave without a photographer. And then men's club, uh, the editor in chief of men's club said, just bring a photographer. Cause we'll use some photos in the magazine. And they're like, okay, fine, whatever. Like, just like this, <laughs> we'll, we'll take Hayashida. Cause he's the men's club photographer. And, um, they get there and they're like, okay, the, they're focused on the film and they tell the photographer, just like, don't get in the way. Like, just shoot whatever you want, but don't get in the way. And uh, they're focused on the movie, but it's like a movie being shot. Like, it's very hard to do that clandestinely. And so they're pretending just to be tourists with this giant, you know, 60 millimeter camera. Uh, and then they had, yeah, I think they had two station wagons and they were just uh, road tripping it kind of across the campuses. And you know, making brief stops at Brown and Columbia, but then spending quite a bit of time at Dartmouth. You know, I, th- I think they spent extra time at Dartmouth because when they got there, they were greeted by the PR person and, you know, warmly kind of invited to a lot of things. And then, you know, the film, which very few people have seen, and I'm trying to work on getting it uh, properly archived at the moment and, and more digitally available. The film is mostly filmed at Dartmouth and it's a lot of kind of um, scripted scenes. I mean, there's no dialogue, but it's like a kid is late for class and then the, the professor gets mad at him and there's a party in someone's room, you know? So there's all these kind of little scenes of life of a college campus that take place at Dartmouth. But yeah, they're just kind of running around. And then uh, the other funny thing is they, to film this whole operation, they need a lot of cash, but there was a massive limit on the amount of cash you could take out of Japan at the time. It was just super small. And so they were illegally carrying a suitcase worth of US dollars uh, or, or, or Japanese yen that they had to keep converting. And they kept going to the bank to be like, I need another $5,000 of US currency. And you know, the bank managers are coming out saying, like, why do these Japanese people have so much money? So you know, there's this whole kind of logistical nightmare that they're dealing with too at the time, because again, you know, doing a film production in the United States as a fashion brand in 1965 was more or less an impossible proposition. I hope Paul got paid well. <laughs> He's there translating at the bank and at every restaurant and every like motel and everything they're doing. Yeah, and um, he's, like, he's like the junior member of the team. And the other thing is the director happened to have gone to the same high school as him and was a little older. And so, and I think they were both in the same sports club. And so he speaks of it as basically like just getting bullied by the director at all time to like, hey, I need you to get an ambulance in the next 10 minutes. You know, see ya, go do it. Um, and so I think he, he found the whole thing to be exhausting. And also, yeah, I think he had some friends at like Wharton or something. So he was just trying to get work done so he could go party with them and, you know, as quickly as possible. And then they all flew back through uh, Hawaii and did a couple of days in Hawaii. And then they went to Japan to edit the film. I hadn't been aware that there was a, like a narrative film that was being made at the same time. Um, so there, I, 
these little scenarios and vignettes that you're describing, are they recruiting college students to act these out? Are they having themselves dress up in the, the van jacket apparel? No, no, no. It's all, it, yeah, it was all Dartmouth, Dartmouth kids. So I don't know how they like convince these kids to be in it, but you know, uh, okay, for this scene, you're carrying your books and you're late for class. Uh, but yeah, they, they, um, they got Dartmouth kids to be in it. it so I have so many questions about this movie. Is there like a running through line or is it just sort of like a collection of scenes like killer space clowns from planet? <laughs> it's really weird. I mean, it's, it's weird. makes it sound like it's avant-garde or something, but it's, it's just a strange thing. If you've seen the book, because it's similar, like once in a while, there'll, there'll be a shot of uh, a kid walking across campus. That's the same as the book, like in, you know, dressed in a certain way, but there's, actually a little less of that than you think there's a lot of shots of cars and buildings um like just like look at this beautiful brick building in a way that it it feels boring today and especially boring if you're an american because you're like yeah it's just a brick building um and it's also like there's a score that's jazz but it's punctuated by this like vocal chorus being like harvard (laughs) or whatever so uh it's uh it's odd and and there's the scripted scenes but then there's also some clearly documentary footage it's a big mix the the director had studied film at the sorbonne in in paris and so it's a little bit arty and so that's 30 minutes and then there's a 30 minute reel where they went to new york after and they shot just kind of new york as new york and it's a pretty nice uh you know portrait of new york in 1965 and you get to see a lot of businessmen uh and bank bank people wearing you know very ivy league style uh but you know i think the the college the college footage is what people are more interested in like dartmouth was a pretty rowdy place in the early like that's where animal houses the like supposedly or a lot of those stories came out of was like 1960 something dartmouth um did they encounter like i know they talk about uncouth style but did they encounter like any of that crazy behavior and then just be like you know what we're going to shove this under the rug and just continue to show people playing softball (laughs) or or how did they really like respond to actual college behavior of the early 60s i don't think they saw the really wild stuff but uh i think the end of the trip they they went to princeton and when they got there some beer company had sponsored a big party at nassau hall like the you know one of the central buildings and so there's all these drunk kids singing you know, chanting Princeton songs, which they thought was amazing. But uh, I, I, I did not hear that they should, they saw something really crazy. I mean, I think the, the other part of this is that, again, it's, the, it's late May. No one's really on campus. When they brought all this stuff back to Japan, uh, how was it received? You said that the, the movie was the focal point of this whole expedition. So is this something that was being screened in like Tokyo movie houses or uh, was the book printed immediately? Like, what did they do when they got back, I guess? So they went back and they started editing the movie and, you know, I guess they got back like in June and they, they had to get it ready for the fall collection. So they wanted to be the big fall moment for Van Jacket. And they were going to throw these events for their customers and for retailers because Van Jacket had a pretty good network of retailers across Japan. And they invited them all over and said, watch this and you'll understand Ivy, Ivy League style and know how to sell it a lot better. And so. They, they were working on the film and then the book was just like, yeah, I guess we have photos for a book. We could, we can make a book, I guess, whatever. Like it, it just was a very secondary thought. And Paul Hasegawa had to go off and write all those captions. And the other two were working on the editing and they needed a title for it. And Kurosu, one of the, the writers, uh, was thought he was being very clever, which is the Dave Brubeck song, Take Five. If you say it in Japanese, it's take five. And the word ivy is ibi. And so there's something similar in Japanese about five and ibi. And so he said, oh, it's like take ibi. Uh, and that's where the name came from. It's a, it's a joke on the Dave Brubeck song. But of course, in English, that's completely lost. And he's very proud that, you know, because he doesn't speak English, he was able to come up with that. But uh, nobody who spoke English would have seen the similarity between those two words. The, the most inside joke pun uh, ever is the inspiration behind the name. Yes. <laughs> so they, they came up with the name Take Ivy. They throw a really big party. 
uh, there's some great photos. I've got some in the book of all the kids who showed up at this party, like dressed to the nines in their mattress and cotton suits. And then they sent the film off to other retailers, like in Kyushu and other places. And, and they did screenings there. And then they, um, the book got printed. There's not that there were, weren't that many copies printed. And half of them got bought by Van Jacket to distribute to the retailers or to sell in the stores. And then the film basically disappeared. Like it went out of print. I think there was only, there's three copies. One of them is in really good shape. One of them, we, uh, someone found in their, in their storage and it was completely molded over and can't be restored. But the, one of them is in great shape and it, and it, it has been digitized uh, onto DVD, but I, I think it's, it could be probably done more properly. And then the book fell also into more or less kind of fell out of circulation. It, you know, it sold a little bit, but then by 1966, the, you know, mods come in in England and the continental French style starts getting big in Japan as well. And Van Jacket actually starts dabbling in that. And so by 66, 67, you start getting hippies and mods and all these other looks. And so the idea of, of Ivy League style being the only youth fashion is, is gone within a year. And so the book lingers a little bit and uh, no one really cares about it. But then what happens in the early 70s is there's another revival of Ivy League style about 1972 or three, kind of as hippie styles is dying off. And at that point, the book is reprinted in pretty large quantities. And at this point, also, there's just more Japanese young people who have money to buy Ivy League clothing because it was really expensive still in 64, 65. You had to be pretty rich. And so by the early 70s, more kids can wear it and there's more interest in it. And men's club starts re-pushing the idea of Take Ivy and showing the photos again. They start publishing these guides to Ivy League style using all of the articles that they had in the 60s and kind of compiling them. And so the book, the reprint does really well. And that's when it starts becoming legendary. And if you're in Japan, finding a copy of the 1965 print is pretty difficult. I have one with the cover missing, uh, but they don't show up much. And those are very expensive. But the, most of the ones you'll find are 1973 reprints. And then it was reprinted again, in, I think 1980. Um, and every kind of wave of Ivy revival that happens, because there's another wave in the late 70s, and then uh, obviously there's the wave in uh, 2006 or seven that Tom Brown more or less ushers in. From there, there you know, it, it, at that point in the 21st century, it had become this legendary book, even in Japan. Um, but certainly in 1965, it was kind of this thing. It was like, oh, that was interesting. And people understood Ivy League style more. They understood it wasn't so delinquent. And that was it. Now, one of the bigger audiences in 1965 for them after they finished with the retailers was that the police were knocking on their door again saying, hey, the kids are back. And the kids th this time, they're, they're not the Miyuki Zoku, the Miyuki tribe, they're the Ivy Zoku, the Ivy tribe. And this is, this is all you, Van Jacket, you did this, so you better clean it up. So they, they said, hey, good news, we've got this movie we just made, and it shows the Ivy League style is not delinquent. And they show the cops, and the cops are like, oh yeah, this is pretty good, I get it. Why don't we rent a big space in Ginza invite all the kids for free. They'll come and they'll watch the movie and then you can tell them to, to stop hanging out in Ginza. And so they throw this big event. Uh, it was like committee subcommittee on juvenile delinquency or something. Uh, and they do this big event in late 1965. They screen the film and then Kinsuke Shizu from Van Jacket gets up and tells them all, like, if you really get Ivy League style, you'll know that you, you shouldn't be hanging around in Ginza uh, with your friends. And so then they all disappear kind of in the next couple of weeks. And there's different theories of why it is. The most plausible one is they all disappear because school just goes back in session. So the kids go back to school and they disappear. But the, the police are convinced that Van Jacket has this like amazing power over all youth. Uh, and they're, they're very thankful that they have made the kids disappear from Ginza again. And then the cops get Van Jacket to design their uniforms as a kind of nice little kicker to that story. But, um, you know, so by the end of the, 65 van jacket has solved most of their problems with the take ivy film but at that point they just kind of move on to new projects but thinking more about how i guess people like us are talking about take ivy uh, at what point did it begin to become relevant in the, the west and 
it, it followed, uh, you mentioned Tom Brown. Was that sort of the, the next wave that came in and brought Take Ivy from Japan uh, into uh, North American and European markets? So around, I want to say like, you know, 06, 07, 08, there's this brewing movement um, in the United States between designers and brands who are kind of getting back into Americana. And then fashion blogging, men's fashion blogging is kind of coming up. Before that, the forums were pretty big and streetwear and denim. And then you started getting kind of these blogs that were more focused on traditional men's clothing. And so a continuous lean Michael Williams blog in 2008 printed uh, or put online a couple of scans from the book. As far as I know, this is really the big public uh, celebration of Take Ivy, the first one. And it turned out that like, you know, Mark McNary and Michael Bastian, all these people had had photocopies of it. So Mark McNary worked at J Press and J Press is owned by a Japanese company. And so I think when he went to Japan, he saw Take Ivy and said, can you photocopy this for me? And so he had a, a pack of photocopies that he used as reference. But um, Michael Williams putting this online starts the obsession with it and copies start going on eBay for $200, $300, if not more. And uh, then the, a blog called The Trad gets a copy of the book from, I think someone sent it from Japan and scans the entire book and puts it online. And so at this point, everyone is looking at these images. Now, the question also is kind of like, why do people care about this book in particular? And as Americans start getting interested in American traditional style again, you know, the first thing you have to understand is for a lot of people at that age, their own fathers or guardians or whoever weren't necessarily dressing like that anymore. That, that, that whole knowledge had been lost. And so in order to start dressing like that again, they had to know how to do it and they needed reference materials. And it turned out because this style was so boring and commonplace in the 60s, there weren't actually that many American uh, books or things that had those photos. So Life Magazine often went to like Princeton and shot the kids to see what they're, how they were dressing because they were real style leaders at the time, but there weren't good books. And so Take Ivy was a book that showed how Americans, how American men dressed in 1965 in color. And they were great reference images for anyone who was trying to retake that traditional style. And so they were an immediate hit online and people were referencing them. And then from there, Powerhouse got the idea to do the reprint. And then in 2010, the reprint came out. And so that was one very much where the publishing world looked at the noise being generated online. And then, you know, when the New York Times investigated the story in 2010, they found that all those uh, designers of the, the kind of trad influence brands had been using the book as a reference for quite a while. Wow. Yeah, that was the first time that I can remember encountering it was in like the late 2000s, uh, like maybe 2010. And it was from that same like uh, men's fashion blogging thing that was just starting to take off. Uh, Reed, when did you first uh, meet Take Ivy? My dad lived at the time around the corner from liquor store in New York. Like that J. Crew. It was yep. like it was like Mickey Drexler's. I think it was like basically his attempt to recreate Take Ivy into a store, to be totally honest. And they had copies lying around probably by 2010. They might have actually had a Japanese copy in there, in their like little bookshelf. They had a vintage bookshelf in there. I remember thumbing through it there. I remember McNally Jackson on like Prince and Mulberry had, because they had a good relationship with Powerhouse. Um, I think that's where I picked up my personal copy. But yeah, I think I encountered it the very first time at at liquor store. But then I worked at Union Made Goods for a long time um, in San Francisco, and we sold the book and could never keep that on like in in stock. We'd get like seven or eight copies from from Powerhouse, and they usually were claimed before even put them out. Like it was like someone being like, "Hey, do you have this?" It's like, "No, nah, we'll get them in a little bit." Um, and yeah, it was sort of that relation. The book, yeah, it always, it always disappeared pretty quick. Yeah. And every American, I would say every, but like many American traditional 
clothing brands I would go to in the U.S. would have a copy in their little bookshelf uh, of Take Ivy. And so, um, yeah, it just became kind of ubiquitous in that era of the, that American traditional boom from about 2008 to 2014 or so. I imagine the authors of the book must be quite pleased with how it's being received right now and how much influence they inadvertently had on American style, at least recently. Yeah, I mean, they're of a generation that in some ways thinks that the thing they did was incredibly inauthentic in the sense that like, hey, I'm just, we're just copying American style. Like, why are you paying attention to us? Um, So they find it uh, amusing, but, you know, a little bewildering also because they really did see their role as introducing these concepts into Japan for a Japanese audience only that would never be seen uh, outside. They knew they were bullshitting a lot of it, that they were mm-hmm. just kind of making up where they didn't know something. It's not like they feel like they got caught or something, but they just, they feel looking back like, yeah, we didn't know what we were talking about and don't maybe don't pay too much attention to it. I don't think that the captions alone would make this super famous. I don't think anyone's going to reissue uh, issues of men's club from 1964, just for the instruction, right? Like all that is, is not as valuable, but you know, just the documentary photos. I mean, it is, it's a little narcissistic of Americans to be interested in the book because yes, it's taken by a Japanese film crew, but it's of American style. Um, and with an eye of a kind of documentary anthropological view that we don't necessarily have, but that that documentary eye is the reason that we have the book at all, because you know people in the United States wouldn't have taken the photos in the same way. Has there ever been an acknowledgement that the people who theoretically inspired all these rules uh, were at least openly sort of thoughtless or careless? about about what they were wearing in that sense or at least want to be perceived that way yes so i think that you know they had seen ivy league style as this very rule-based system and you know it's also important to realize that like it's very easy to say that's a very japanese way of thinking because there's lots of instances in japanese culture that are very rule-based and it's a very ritualized culture at the same time if you're introducing something that people have no context for and you're needing to teach people about it, it doesn't matter what it is. Like if you had to teach people how to play American football, you have to tell them the rules of how to do it in order to do it properly. It's just, you know, it's inherent in importing something is to break it down into a set of rules that can be imitated. And so in that process, they were getting really obsessed with let's make a bunch of rules. And what they found was that, and maybe this is actually, I think this is the Japanese part is that the, readers of men's club would tell them more rules we want more rules because they wanted to do it right they were already being radical by wearing the style that didn't really exist in japan and if they're going to do it they wanted to do it right and so people didn't really have confidence to break the rules because they didn't they hadn't even absorbed the rules yet so they wanted rules and the editors were happy to write the rules and the first kind of thing that happened when they went to the U.S. and they talked to kids and the kids were like, I don't know why I do anything. Uh, they realized that there, there maybe weren't the rules. And they, they even kind of, uh, they're pretty open about that in the interviews when they get back in 1965. And they say like, yeah, we were surprised that it's a much less rule-based system. And I think there was a little bit of thought, especially of Kurosu, of like, hey, maybe we need to make this a little bit less rule-based. And then in the 80s, interestingly, uh, Kinsuke Shizu, so there's a big preppy boom in Japan in the 80s, and, and Van Jacket comes back, and Kinsuke Shizu becomes like a style icon again, even though he's in his 60s, I guess, at that point. And Kinsuke Shizu writes a lot of essays kind of like, we missed the point of Ivy. Ivy was a way of life. It was a, a true culture in the sense of people uh, unconsciously replicating a certain, certain style they're learning from their brothers and their fathers and uncles. It's not rule-based. It's not conscious. And we turned it into this very, like, you shall wear Oxford button-downs, uh, a rule book, and that missed the point. And so there's, there's been a lot of kind of soul-searching about that discrepancy over the years. But most certainly people, and when you read Japanese magazines, they're very didactic and, and rule-based. And a lot of that comes from the fact that it's kids who may not be in Tokyo, who may not know how to dress, but they want to know how to do it properly. And they worry 
because they're not confident about it and they want that instruction to be incredibly specific. Which is the same for, I guess, a lot of other uh, subcultures, especially in raw denim, that the number of people that still email the site directly saying, how do I wash my pants? How do I wash my pants? Did I ruin them? They went in the washing machine. That uh, for people that anyone that's entirely unfamiliar with a new subgenre, they want to know exactly how to do it correctly, especially when it involves you know, so much of a financial investment. Yeah, and you know, a lot of my writing about Japan for a long time has been to try to to normalize in the sense that it's very easy to come to Japan and say this is different because you know Japanese people are different culturally, and instead to look at here are the economic or social or structural factors, or here's the way the media is run. You know, the fact that magazines in Japan are more or less co uh, edited by the brands who sponsor it makes a big impact on the kind of content that's in them, right? And so if you look at all these factors, you can explain 85, 90% of the differences before you get to the thing of, you know, in the 1700 years ago in Japan, something happened and therefore people in Japan still act that way. You know, that, that kind of uh, cultural thinking, I think, is usually not helpful. And so what is what kind of proves the point of this is, you know, hey, Americans are individualists and people in Japan are group oriented or whatever kind of dichotomy you create. And so you can say, okay, that's why the Japanese are so obsessed with rules and Americans aren't. Americans are mavericks, the rule breakers, like, you know, Top Gun. I, I love the film Top Gun. It's like an embodiment of American ideology. Because, you know, the best pilot is clearly Iceman. <laughs> right? It's, it's indisputable. Yeah, like he follows Maver the rules. Maverick's a lunatic. Maverick's, get, he gets his partner killed, no? Like, you know, so uh, Maverick's a lunatic who's not playing by the book, but at the end, that's the only way you can beat uh, the Russians is to have the Maverick. Like, so, you know, we have this whole thing about rule breaking, but then of course, like, yeah, when Japanese fashion comes to the United States and nobody has any grasp on it with raw denim and everything, you know, Americans are in the exact same position of saying, what is the rule? Tell me the rule of how to do this properly. And so, so much of it is much more about importation and, uh, imitation without confidence rather than any kind of cultural background Boom. um well your book amatora uh i think most of our listeners will be aware of but it's available pretty much everywhere um is there anything that you're working on right now that you'd like to plug or uh, send some attention to yeah i'm writing a new book that is not due for another six months and won't come out till 2022 but it's more or less trying to look at uh you know how does culture work and uh, why is it the culture changes? Where does culture come from? And I've been thinking about these questions for a long time. And I think Amatora, in a sense, is, is a case study in that. Like, how does a how does the culture of menswear in Japan start and spread, and then go back to America and influence America? And so I'm trying to look at more of the abstract process because there's fashion trends in coffee, there's fashion trends in dog breeds. It's a really um, clear part of human life. Is is the way we we bundle into trends and those trends change. And uh, I thought about it for a long time and I, I was trying to figure out what what was the, the single principle. And I finally have discovered, or I believe to have discovered what I think is kind of the missing link, which is social status. And you know, we all know that social status is linked to to fashion in some ways. But you know, if you see all of these things through the lens of social status and kind of uh, go as far as you can with status to say, how do people get it and what do they do to get it? Uh, you can kind of explain most cultural behavior, uh, fashion trends, why fashion changes, why fashion stays the same, why history preserves some cultures, not others, uh, why art happens, why subcultures happen, all of that. And so the book I'm writing now is trying to draw a through line of all these different cultural phenomenon through status and to connect them all and kind of make sense of it as one single phenomenon. So working on that now, um, I got a lot of clues to that process from understanding the way men's fashion works in particular, but the book is trying to say that all these principles are, are just kind of a part of human society. And again, you know, I talk about grain, grain silos. There's a, there's fashion trends with grain silos. There's fashion trends with, um, you know, the fact that we find certain dog breeds more beautiful than others is clearly related to status and all that. So that's the book I'm working on and, and look, look forward to it in 2022. 
Right, thanks, and hopefully we'll be able to use it to uh, predict whatever the next trending dog breed is. Um, well, I mean, the, the funny thing is, I'll read articles. They'll be like, um, "Why is this dog breed hot?" And it's in, it's a huge list of all the functional reasons. Like, oh, well, this dog is good for training, and the the shedding is like this. And it's like it's just it's just a fashionable dog. Uh, but you know, I think one of the the reasons why there hasn't been a book like this so far is that we do have this kind of taboo where we think fashion is stupid and you know even people who uh tend to write about fashion or write about clothing talk about style and talk about you know individual style not about fashion because fashion is kind of just following other people's opinions and, and but we do a disservice to ourselves by not taking it seriously because it really does explain the reason we make a lot of decisions that we do um we don't make them rationally and we don't make them based on biological instinct we make it based off of these conventions we have in society. And so understanding that process is, is good for just understanding how the world works. And you get a lot of clues by looking at, at fashion. Well, thank you. I look forward to reading that. And uh, you know, the irony is never lost on me that a lot of raw denim culture is just, you know, people spending a lot of money to dress up like poor people from the early 20th century. So hopefully that will be cleared up a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the the other I'll leave you with one more detail about Japanese jeans, which is just the fact that you know Japanese jeans were never a work pant at all. You know they always were an imported American style, and so you know that whole principle of you know all these people paying three hundred dollars for a durable uh, work pant to to use in the gold mines, uh, you know it it didn't even have a history in Japan of ever being used that way. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time and uh, explaining Take Ivy. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And, and, and thank you for supporting the book Amatora from the very beginning. Well, thank you for sticking around. And thank you to David Marks for uh, staying on and hanging with us. Hope you enjoyed and uh, learned a lot about Take Ivy. And you should check out that book as well as check out uh, David Marks's book. They are very good companion pieces. If you want to support the show, you can always uh, go to the Heddle shop and use the code BLOWOUT, B-L-O-W-O-U-T. And uh, you could also leave us a review that helps us bump up in the rankings and get more people listening to us. Um, and if you have any comments, questions, concerns, or uh, any other people that you want us to interview, what's our email, Reed? Blowout at Heddles.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we will check back with you soon. Bye-bye.